please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, we will pick up with the 10th verse. Four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within, and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book, and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. The first study that I made in John's Apocalypse from a Reformed perspective was Jonathan Edwards' notes on the Apocalypse. A lovely volume published now by Yale, if you're interested in getting it. I was struck in this, uh, as Edwards justified his historical or historicist approach to the book of Revelation, he came with an expectation that as God had always spoken to all of history, that now he would continue to speak to all of history. When you come to the last book of the Bible, his expectation is that God would now speak to the rest of the story, the rest of the history. And as I thought about uh, his comments, it was quite striking that God had always spoken to uh, all of the things that were significant in history with regard to his people. Unlike dead idols, he declared the history of the ancient peoples, reaching so far back that there is no other history like it, going back to the very first man. And even during the so-called silent prophetic years, from Malachi to the arrival of John the Baptist, we find that even when there was no inspired historian, there was an inspired prophet. There were several, but Daniel we think of in particular who speaks to the intervening history. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans with such specificity that uh, unbelieving liberal critics think that Daniel couldn't have possibly been written when Daniel lived. 
it's simply impossible to speak with so much detail to the rising and falling of these uh, kingdoms. So Edwards gets to the last book of the Bible and he expects that now God is going to give the rest of the history of the world and tell his people everything that they need to know with regard to that history until Jesus would come again. Edward saw this as a thing most valuable and necessary that the church would need to know. They would need the guidance that God would provide in that history. And maybe even more than that, they would need its encouragement. They would need to know the ultimate end of the matter and even have some sense that the church's hardships would not be ongoing forever, but that they would have an end. So we ask the question, why is it so very valuable for the church to know her future history and her ultimate end? And we've talked a lot about that. Because in entering into the kingdom of God, the church must pass through a history of tribulation. As Paul told the churches of Asia Minor in Acts chapter 14, it is only through many tribulations that we will enter into the kingdom of God. And with suffering, a natural question arises in the heart of man. We see it from time to time in the Psalms. How long, O Lord, how long will you suffer your church to be thus vexed? It's a very helpful thing to know something of the time frame, particularly when we can be encouraged with thoughts that the season is short. I think back on my on my own life and during my periods of greatest exertion, it was always a great comfort to know that the period of exertion had a limit to it, even if it seemed long in the midst of it. I can remember certain semesters at Westminster Seminary where I would work 20 or 21 hours out of the day for uh, four solid months. And the days would begin to bleed into one another, and you enter into that haze. If you've ever greatly restricted sleep, you'll know the haze that I'm talking about. But day by day, I was able to encourage myself. It's just four months. I can do anything for four months, and then it will be over, and life will be normal again. I had a similar experience with my son Noah when he broke his arm. There was a green, green stick fracture. We went to the doctor and he said that um, you know, he needed to straighten it some, but that it was not a good idea to, uh, to put a child under to give any sort of anesthesia. So he's going to have to do this while Noah's awake, which of course is a very painful thing. But what I was saying to my son while he was performing all of this was, this will be over in just a moment, and then I'll take you home. And it's a comforting thing to know that it's going to be over in just a moment, and I only have to endure for a short while. And so you can see when the church is called to suffering, it can be a very helpful thing to know that the time of suffering is just a short season, and then there will be rest. More than that, we're told of the church's ultimate end. So we're not just promised a rest, but a victory. Just a short space. And then, victory. You can see why John 
the Apostle John would set such a high value upon knowing the contents of the scroll. And you can also see why he would weep when at first no one appears to open the scroll. This is distressing. Let us set our text in front of us again. As we turn the page to chapter 5, we really come to the principal matter of the book of Revelation. It's the scroll that is in the hand of God. If you think back to last week, we identified this not just as God's decree concerning all things or the scroll of God's general providence. This is God's special providence toward his church. Notice also, if we're going to uh, view John's apocalypse rightly, even when we uh, turn our attention to the details happening around the throne, we always need to keep at least one eye upon the throne itself and see God as governing and directing all the things that take place. The history is in his hand, his right hand, the hand of skill and power. But there is a problem. The book is sealed. This must have seemed to be a strange thing to John because John had been promised a revelation, an apocalypsis, which quite literally means an uncovering or unveiling or, if you will, an unsealing. But yet he comes to the scroll of history, and it's sealed up, completely sealed up with seven seals. After all, you remember that this uh, book was titled A Revelation, an Apocalypsis, an Unveiling, an Unsealing. And yet John has found the book to be sealed. And we pick up with verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Notice that John says again, And I saw, the vision is progressing along, and what he saw was a strong angel making a proclamation with a mighty voice. This appears to be an angelic being, properly speaking. That class of heavenly beings that have no earthly bodies. And here, this angel is uh, uh, fulfilling a, a herald's function. He is making a proclamation on behalf of God. It's really something of a challenge and a search one final thing about the angel. This angel is described as strong. We will find as the vision progresses that there are other angelic beings about. This one, compared to the others, appears to be particularly noteworthy for his strength and his power. And this seems to highlight something of the importance of his task. That it's not been one of the weaker sort of brethren that has been commissioned with this, but a very mighty angel with a very loud voice. So it seems that the question that he poses is a very important one. What is it that he proclaims? Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? 
I want you to notice here that this doesn't just refer to ability. He doesn't ask who has the ability to do so. He asks the question, who is worthy to do so? Who is of sufficient worth or dignity or standing? Uh, Who could, in justice, make a claim to take the book out of God's right hand and break its seals and open it? That's really the question. Who has a claim, a just claim? upon the knowledge that is contained in that book. And so here, all of creation is set to an examination of itself. Who does have the worth, the dignity, the standing to go to the right hand of God and pluck the book out and break the seals and look upon the contents? And in verse 3, we get the answer. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. In, in uh, Greek, quite literally, it's no one. It doesn't specify um, human. And when with the language of in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, it seems to be something like no creature None at all. No heavenly creature, no earthly creature, no infernal creature uh, thought himself to have the right, the dignity, the standing to take the book and to open the seals. And so the angel's challenge is met with universal silence. Universal silence. All of the creation is dumb before the Most High. Verse 4, John's response to all of this, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. The creation's mute response leads to grief on John's part. And you see here what I was emphasizing from the beginning that John sees the contents of the book as being very valuable. They are of great worth. Knowledge of God's special providence is something to be prized and is a thing useful to be known in many ways. I think John's affection is right here, although... um, Perhaps his grieving despair is misdirected. We do pick up something of a lesson here, something you should think about. We won't dwell upon here. This is always what happens when we take our eyes off of Christ and focus the uh, eyes upon creatures. Despair. Grieving despair. Maybe just a bit of enlargement might be in order. There have been many times. uh, To tell you the truth, I I can't say that I understand how Arminians even live. Uh, Because I think I would die of the despair of it. If you've ever wrestled very seriously with your own sins, and perhaps as simply a brother, I know this firsthand being in the uh, pastoral ministry, to have to try to help other people with their sins... Does it ever just seem impossible? 
So you've got the, a brother with this sin. He comes to you with this problem. And then you try to help him. But you do it sinfully. And then he responds to your sinfulness sinfully. And you just walk away thinking, this is impossible. How are we going to have any help? And this is what happens when we focus upon the creature. It just seems impossible. And the end of it is a despairing grief. And we're going to find that there's not going to be any encouragement for John until he is reminded by one of those 24 elders that he really needs to keep his eyes focused upon Jesus. The Lamb who has overcome and who is worthy to go and take the scroll of the book. But I digress. My one doctrine this morning is that the contents of the book of Revelation are valuable. This appears to be John's attitude. Does it not seem to you to be a pious attitude towards the contents of the book? I hope that you don't think him to be misdirected and that he sets so much value upon the knowing of their contents. But I think we can go further in proving the doctrine. Christ would certainly not be so glorious in revealing something that is of little value. Would he? But here we see Christ to be greatly glorified as the slain lamb and as the great prophet of the church and that he is able to take these hidden things and make them known. And we'll see before the end of this chapter, Christ greatly glorified indeed by all of his people, and that in that he is able to do so. And also, as we, as we back up to more general biblical considerations, we find that so much of Scripture is taken up with divine commentary on history. So much of Scripture is taken up with prophecy concerning the church's future and end. Would God speak so much to something that was of so little value? We'll come to my reasons for wanting to enlarge upon this in just a moment. But I want to remind you that the content of this book, of all the Scripture prophecy in general this book in particular, that it is valuable, a valuable thing to be had, and worth the effort of coming to an understanding of it. And I wanted to give you no less than five reasons to set a great value upon the prophetic portions of Scripture. First of all, as I've already mentioned, it's very useful when it comes to perseverance in tribulation. We are encouraged that tribulation will not last forever, that it's a seasonal thing. So we are encouraged to keep going through this short season. But we're also encouraged to persevere because we are taught that our efforts and our sufferings are not in vain, but that the ultimate end of all of this is victory. So all of it will have been found at the end to have been productive toward that victory. Second, it is a very valuable thing to know that spiritual character of persons, institutions, events, and so on, 
Because this true spiritual character, many things would be otherwise hidden from us. As a matter of fact, we in our fallen condition can frequently draw the opposite conclusions. Frequently, the most wicked things in the history of the world are the things that appear to men most religious, pious, and holy. And we need to be misabused of our misapprehensions. We need to be taught better. I wanted to give you a couple of illustrations of this. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 9. I will justify my interpretation and use of this section uh, in a while. But in the meantime... We are coming toward the end of the medieval history at this point. You have had a thousand years of priestcraft and monasticism. And uh, I do remember uh, reading through this section in E.B. Eliot's Horae Apocalypticae as he goes through the crimes of the medieval Roman church. The crimes and the gross wickedness and all with a very pious face. And he goes page after page and scores of pages after scores of pages chronicling this history. But you have to remember that these priests, and particularly the monks who were involved in these crimes, seemed like the holiest people on the planet and were reckoned largely to be such. But to have the true spiritual character unveiled was a very helpful thing. Verse 20 of chapter 9. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils. Or there you might even uh, read something like demons or departed spirits, one of the besetting sins of Romanism. And idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which you can still see to the present day. All you need to do is walk into our Roman church and you will see these idols. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. You do know that the Roman clergy in particular, became uh, somewhat notorious. It's interesting because they still somehow did not lose their reputation for holiness, but their fornications and their thefts became notorious. Vows of celibacy, yes, but brothels spread throughout Rome for their use. So much so that uh, when that pious German monk traveled down from Germany to visit Holy Rome. He was shocked. He said, Rome is an open sewer. What is This is supposed to be Holy Rome, and yet there are brothels on the street corners, not for the use of the common man, but for the use of the clergy. They are murders. If you ever want to read a, a history of the papacy, you don't need to go very far to see the his, history of intrigue unto murder as men uh, fought with one another for the papal uh, throne. Their sorceries and their false 
miracles. The reformers wrote very long books on this as, uh, as well. My point in bringing all of this up is that without this useful scriptural commentary, men were very much confused and deceived concerning the true spiritual character of this institution, the Roman Church, as well as the men who occupied its offices. And so it's a very helpful thing for us. As a matter of fact, in our day and age, it has come to pass because, largely because the true interpretation of this book has been forgotten, that men have become confused again about the spiritual character of Rome. But Rome has not changed one whit since the Middle Ages. They're not deceived. Another example, uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. yet another spiritual prophecy that is given to reveal true spiritual character of institutions and persons. Verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Now, before I press on here, you see the, uh, the old Greek dualism that was already at work in Timothy's time. So this pertains to Timothy in a very direct way. Basically, the old Greek dualism was that spirit is good, material, thing is, material things are bad or evil, and so men who wanted to be pious, uh, be good philosophers and good pagans, would tend towards a certain sort of asceticism. You simply deny the body, even what we would consider to be its legitimate uses. So, if you wanted to be a very pious pagan, uh, one of the very best of the philosophers, perhaps you would abstain from marrying, uh, and you would abstain from eating, as far as it was possible to do so. This uh, fosters spirituality and a focus upon spirit, and it's a putting off of material things, which were seen to be intrinsically evil. This doctrine did not stop there. In spite of Paul's warning, it was absorbed into the church and had its full flowering in Roman asceticism. If you ask the question, where did monasticism come from? Because you won't find a whisper of it in the scripture. It basically came from this. These pagan philosophers appear so very holy in the way that they deny the body. And we as Christians ought not to be outdone, should we? And so the old Greek dualism is taken up into the church as well as its ascetic disciplines. So basically what you had was the strange situations of Christians trying to excel pagans in their paganism. But Paul had warned, and he called all of this a doctrine of devils 
which funda- was a fundamental denial of the fundamental Christian doctrine of the creation, a good creation created by a good God. Verse 4, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Nourished up in the words of faith and of doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. So I want you to see here that the spiritual character of the Greek dualism, which could be beguiling because it seemed holy to them, it is unmasked. And of course, when this had its full flowering in Romanism, the spiritual character of these things is unmasked as well. So here I set this forth as a second reason to put a great value upon prophecy. It unveils or uncovers for us the true spiritual character of things that might be otherwise hidden from us. Things where we might be deceived. (coughs) Using this very same text, we can draw a third reason to set great value upon prophetic literature. It's because it also provides instruction and direction. It not only reveals the spiritual character, but it tells us something of how we should then live, given the fact that these things are true. So notice here, um, Paul does not only reveal to Timothy that the old Greek dualism is uh, misguided in its ideas and in its practice, but he also gives some direction that marriage and the marriage bed and the use of meats, all of these things are good and to be received with thanksgiving. And these things are all sanctified as we use them uh, in conjunction with the word of God and prayer. And then we're further uh, exhorted by Paul to beware of an overemphasis upon what he calls merely bodily exercise. By this, he doesn't doesn't mean jogging or lifting weights or these sorts of things. He talks about the bodily exercise of the ascetic disciplines. That's what's in view here. People, because we are creatures of the dirt, to help our spirits, sometimes we fast when we're called upon God's providence to do so. We find ourselves, uh, say, individually or corporately being chastened by God for some sin. So we take up a fast. In our carnality, we we have a tendency to focus upon that physical discipline of fasting. And we miss the point. Because in and of itself, it is a bodily exercise that profits little. Uh, I I think Calvin said very well, he said that, Fasting is the handmaid of prayer, that it's used to put our spirit in the right frame. But the spirit being in the right frame 
is the point. That's the point. And the bodily exercises of no value if that doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, it can do nothing but confuse us if that doesn't become the ultimate end. It works something like this, because we are both spiritual and physical creatures. During a time when God calls us to mourn, and to lament over sin. If we're continually, continually feeding our bodies our pleasant things, our dainties, we find it difficult to put ourselves into an attitude or spiritual frame of mourning. Fasting helps us do that. But the spiritual condition is the point. And it's very easy for us to become confused. So standing for prayer... It's not just a bodily exercise, but it's something that's supposed to frame our spirits or help us frame our spirits in the right way. It's a reverent gesture. Kneeling. When you're in your prayer closet, falling on your face before God. All of these things are legitimate bodily exercises, but never lose the point. The point is the framing of the spirit. I've really digressed. Prophecy gives us direction. Given that these are the facts, this is how you should then live. And these are the things that you should keep in mind. So prophecy is not what we might call mere speculation about future happenings. It is practical direction. It tells us something of how we should live. A fourth reason to set a high value upon prophecy because it makes us watchful. In Eastern nations, they have a doctrine that history is cyclical, that it simply repeats itself. It's really on the long journey to nowhere. It just goes around in a, in a circle. The biblical history is not like that. History is moving in a direction and towards a, a particular end. We are a people who live in a history that is hastening toward a conclusion. And that conclusion is that we shall all shortly stand before the judge to give an account for how we lived during the days of our flesh. Isn't there a certain sort of lethargy that, that happens when people live... Uh, Without direction, as if there's no history, it's sort of a directionless meandering. This happened not only to the to the Eastern people, but it, it happens to all people with the atheistic notions. History's not going any place in particular, and so there's no particular behavior that is required, and there's certainly no urgency, because it just goes on and on and on in its general course to nowhere. But when you have a sense that history is going someplace and that that end very much concerns you and that it's rushing that way very quickly, well, now, there's some urgency in how we live. We are each going to an individual destiny. Under the best of conditions, we are all very soon to die and give an account of ourselves. Sometimes we can think of our lives as long, our lives are not long, not even under the best of conditions. 
we rush to the grave. We rush to our accounting. And we ought to be people that are watchful and mindful that we will soon appear before our Lord. Or if we should live in that last day, He will soon appear before us. But one way or the other, we go to stand before Him quickly. And so we ought to be watchful and live with a sense of urgency. We will soon give an account. And a fifth reason to set a great value upon uh, prophetic literature is its apologetic use. You know that the, uh, the prophecies of Scripture were used over and over again by the apostles to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. And it's no different in our day. How do we prove to a lost and dying world that, that the Scripture is sent from heaven? One of it is one of the principal proofs is the miracle of wisdom that's contained in it as future events which could not possibly be foreseen by men are told and are told in great detail. And in such striking detail as I mentioned earlier, uh, just to give you some insight into what happened in, in liberal scholarship. Uh, for nearly 800 years, the book of Isaiah was in the world and everybody simply assumed it was written by Isaiah. I shouldn't say they assumed. It was written by Isaiah, and everybody of his generation knew it, and everybody just knew it after that. But then you get into the 40s, in those chapters in the 40s, and you start to find extraordinary prophecies of their captivity in Babylon, still more than 150 years distant. In Isaiah's day, Babylon is not yet a world power. This could not have been foreseen. And then their deliverance by Cyrus. Now, you, now you're full 200 years distant. Uh, and Cyrus is mentioned by name. And so, unbelieving liberal scholarship says, this is impossible. This sort of foresight is impossible. Therefore, Isaiah wrote the first 39 chapters. Somebody after Cyrus wrote the last of the book, because this is clearly impossible. You see, they cannot swallow what is on the very face of Scripture, the miracle of wisdom and prophecy that proves it is a God-sent book. Because simply for, the, for the liberal scholar, you see, the, um, the multiple authorship of Isaiah is just an invention, uh, something, something that he must invent, although it never entered anybody's mind until nearly 3,000 years after the book was written. It never entered into anybody's mind. But they had to come up with some way of skirting the fact that you have a miracle of wisdom here. They did the same thing with the book of Daniel. Nobody could tell the rising and falling of these kingdoms with this much detail. Nobody could talk about the, the battling of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids two or three hundred years before it happened with the detail that Daniel tells it. It's just impossible. It had to have been written afterwards. And here they're helping us. They know it not, but they're helping us by demonstrating it is a miracle of wisdom. They concede the fact that it would be impossible for a human being before the fact to prophesy these things. So the prophecies of Scripture have a great apologetic value. 
He went to read a very interesting, and I thought easy to read, uh, treatise on this sort of thing. James McGregor's Apology for the Christian Religion. He was uh, 19th century Scottish Presbyterian. Uh, wrote a very interesting, uh, call it a little book, maybe 550 pages on the prophecy of Scripture and how we can be sure that they prove that this book came from God and that Jesus is the Christ. Indeed, no sane man would deny it. The fallen creatures are not sane. They need to have their insanity relieved by the great God of heaven. Here I've endeavored to give you five reasons uh, to set a great value upon prophetic literature. And now I really come to my reason for bringing this up at all. There has been in our day what the older thinkers would call a sin of excess. It is a sad thing, but in dispensationalist circles, and this is, um, this is really throughout almost all evangelical in our, uh, evangelicalism in our present day, there, there's a noteworthy error that the beginner, the new convert to Jesus Christ is set in front of John's apocalypse as if it were the first thing to be learned or the first thing to be mastered. And so you have novices in the faith attempting to master the details of future prophecy before they've mastered the fundamentals of the faith or even the fundamentals of prophecy. And the scriptures are always commend to us a certain line upon line and precept upon precept learning of the scriptures. I would tell you that you're not ready for John's apocalypse until you have uh, some level of confidence in those Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, the Messianic kingdom, and his way of salvation. Here we press on to more difficult matters and matters that are future to us and and you should understand that when we get into matters that are future to us it's very difficult indeed it's not an easy thing to do sometimes it seems near impenetrable you get a great demonstration of this in the Jews themselves they knew a Messiah was coming they knew about when he was coming but they had a hard time understanding his character they had a very hard time reconciling the suffering servant of Isaiah with the conquering king, say, of the Psalms. How do you put all of these things together into one figure? And so they came up with all sorts of mistaken theories as far as maybe there were two messiahs, one exalted and one humiliated. But you can see the difficulty. Nobody put it together just right until Jesus did. And so this ought to humble us in the face of prophecy that deals with things that are yet future to us. But now if I might, I pointed out a sin of um, excess. It has, I do believe, and I'll leave you to judge for yourself, precipitated in our midst a sin of defect. The Reformed have become so zealous for not being associated with anything that looks like the Left Behind series that they refuse to touch John's Apocalypse or any of the other Scripture prophecies. And I would simply say how different this spirit is than the spirit of John who wept 
to see the book closed and sealed up. I hope that you can see that clearly this is not the right attitude. We are justified in taking a very close study of these things. And for two principal reasons. There is a great value to be set upon all scripture prophecy and its understanding. And I've tried to give you some reasons to illustrate that. But more than that, I hope that you've been seeing while we've been going through this that we have not even been primarily taken up with future things, but that John does uh, present to us here a rich spiritual diet. We have seen a very full body of divinity. We've seen the doctrine of the Trinity set forth. The one person and two natures of Jesus Christ. His atonement. His trifold office of prophet, priest, and king. So we've, we've also taken up a great uh, and large consideration of the body of divinity, the decree of God, God's providence, you see. And as I mentioned uh, in previous sermons, they gave the ancients gave to John the title St. John the Divine or the Theologian because they believed that there was an entire body of divinity presented in this little book. I hope that you've also seen that we've had a large manual of Christian practice, which was our principal concern in the second and third chapters. How should we live as Christians in a crooked and perverse generation? Are we not justified in a very careful and close study of these matters? This is a very valuable book. So let us recommit ourselves to our discipleship and our study of it. I thought we might conclude with the singing of some.